0: And here to bring us the next miracle on the list, our associate pastor, Matt Belusa. Come on, man. Thank you, Pastor Roland. Appreciate you. Every Nation Church, Las Vegas, like Pastor Rose said, my name is Matt, the associate pastor here. Whether you're a familiar face or a new face, we're blessed that you're here. We believe that God wants to bless you with something, something that you need in your soul that you can take with you. And speaking of the familiar and the new, my family went to Disneyland just about a month ago now, and I got to see something familiar with a brand new perspective. Because I've seen the Millennium Falcon more times than I can count at this point. Watching A New Hope. The Empire Strikes Back. Far worse for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back is the best movie, but Return of the Jedi is my favorite. And between all these things, probably watched them dozens of times. So I've seen this. I've seen the Millennium Falcon again and again and again. And of course, it was in the sequel trilogy. I've seen those one time each, and that's going to be it. Um, There's the Solo movie. and talking about the origin story of Han Solo and how he got the Millennium Falcon. He won that in a game of cards against Lando Calrissian, if you didn't know. So anytime the Millennium Falcon is on screen for me, it's nice, and it's nostalgic, and it's familiar, but it's never new, and it's always on a screen, and that's Disneyland, and it was my first time walking through Galaxy's Edge. And of course, Galaxy's Edge is the Star Wars land, built by Disney. And one of the rides, one of the attractions in Galaxy's Edge is Smuggler's Run, which is a ride based on the Millennium Falcon. So when you walk over to the corner of Disneyland, the very back where Smuggler's Run is, you walk up and you see the Millennium Falcon. Recreated and rebuilt, and then you stand in line, and while you're standing in line, Part of that line is actually created to look just like the main hold or the lobby of the Falcon. And I'm just geeking out at this point. Because you look and you're standing right next to the hollow chess table for episode four, where Chewbacca and R2D2 play hollow chess, it's the Jarek. And then I looked around and I'm freaking out. And at the back of the room, you see the droid and the helmet that Luke Skywalker is using when he first learned to use the lightsaber. And I'm seeing something familiar with a brand new perspective. So we've been in this series called Miracles, talking about the miracles of Christ, and I think that's what God wants us to do today, because we'll be talking about one of the most famous miracles. Now, there is only one miracle, aside from the resurrection, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all wrote about. And that one miracle is the feeding of 5,000 men. So as we go to the show, let show us something new. John chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, here's what it says. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So as with the other miracles of Christ, this miracle reveals something about Jesus to us. In fact, I think this one reveals a lot about Jesus. that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. At that time and in that day, people relied on bread for their physical lives. It was a staple food. If you don't have bread, you can't live. And in the same way, we rely on Jesus Christ for our spiritual lives. But if we believe in Jesus and if he's a part of our spiritual lives, then we'll be able to live forever. And that's why Jesus is the bread of life. This miracle also reveals that Jesus can provide for our needs. And if we take what little we have and we put it in his hand, he can multiply it and give it back to us. And we'll find what we need. And in fact, Jesus can multiply it and go beyond and even exceed our needs and bless us. And that's what he wants to do because he loves us. So this is what the miracle teaches us and reveals to us about God. But as I came to this passage to prepare for this sermon, I started to pray. And God started to show me, because Jesus is the star of the show, like always. But there are other people there in the passage. And Jesus gives them a test. Who here likes t- Nobody. Well, today we're going to look at the test that Jesus gave them. And I think if that test had a title, it would be, what do we do when we need a miracle? And that's what we're going to talk about. But first, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you love us. And I pray that you would teach us, Lord, with open, about how we should approach you when there's something we need. and We just can't do it by ourselves. Lord, if anyone here finds himself in that position today, I pray that you would meet with them. God, heal hearts, open our minds, And teach us in a way that only you can. God bless the eagles, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you want to be theologically correct as a football fan, only the eagles are in the Bible. I don't see Chiefs or 49ers. What what is a 49er? 49 chapter of Psalm. I don't know. Anyway, even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength and will mount up on wings like... All right, that's just me. I'm being selfish. I had to get it out of my system. Go birds. Okay, John chapter 6. As we turn back to the Bible and make Jesus the center again, we see that Jesus gave the disciples a test. So the first thing that Jesus does is he turns over to Philip, and he says, hey, Philip, Phil, Philly. That was unplanned. I didn't realize so just now. Phil, Philip, where are we going to get food for all these people? How can we feed them? And I think the reason why Jesus turns over to Philip and he gives Philip this test first is because Philip should have been prepared to take this test. His hometown was nearby. These are his people. And I think Jesus is wanting to give him an opportunity to help him. So now Philip, who's one of the first disciples, has an opportunity to respond. And because Philip is one of the first disciples, he would have been there for all of Jesus' miracles up until this point. And that includes the moment in which Jesus performs his first miracle and turns water into wine. So he had literally seen Jesus create sustenance and provide it from out of basically nothing before. He should have known the answers to the test that Jesus just gave him. He would have been ready for the pop quiz. However, when Jesus presents this test to him, he isn't able to respond. And I think the reason why Philip isn't able to respond is because he looks at Jesus and he looks up and he sees people. He sees thousands upon thousands of people. We're told over and over again in the Gospels that it was about 5,000 men. It was custom in that day to only count the men. But if we account for the women and children who are guaranteed to be in that audience, we're looking at something along the lines of 10 to 15, even 20,000 people. And Philip sees all these people and he thinks about how hungry they must be and about all the needs they must have. And in the face of this great need, Philip has no idea how they're supposed to be. How on earth could they possibly meet such a great need with such little resources, with such little ability? And I think if we think about our lives, we'll realize that we've been in similar positions too. I bet most of us have never stood in front of ten to 20,000 people But we have had hurting, desperate people around us who need something. We just aren't able to help. We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. We don't have the ability. Or maybe we're the ones in need. Maybe we're the ones who have finances and the numbers just aren't adding up. Maybe we're the ones with a health problem that nobody can fix and that nobody can heal or a problem that nobody can solve, a relational rift that nobody can bridge. And we don't know what to do. It's like solving this problem, meeting this need. It's impossible. So how do we do the impossible? In other words, what do we do when we need a miracle? That is the test that Jesus is presenting to his disciples. And sometimes that's a test that life presents to us. So we see Philip here and we realize that Philip has no idea how to answer this test. And as I was studying the passage this past week, I realized I have no idea. And if you're like me and you've ever taken a test and you don't know the answer, didn't know the answer to the question, maybe you felt frustrated or a little nervous, maybe even a little defeated. And in that way, tests are unique because they do more than reveal what's in our heads. A test can reveal what's happening in our hearts. And no one does that better than God. God's tests reveal the conditions of our heart. So Jesus turns over to Philip and he says, Philip, what are we going to do? How can we feed all these people? And Philip's response to Jesus reveals something about the condition of his heart. Philip says, Jesus, we would have to spend half of an annual salary in order to give everyone here a Costco sample-sized bite. What's that going to do? Are we even being paid for this? Where are we going to get this money from? And this reveals, one, that Philip is realistic. Maybe he's even a numbers-minded guy. He can immediately look out at the crowd and think about how much money it's going to take to feed these people. These are good things. But this test also reveals that Philip, in spite of the miracles that he's seen, in spite of having walked with Jesus, he hasn't fully learned how to trust Jesus yet. I think Philip's response reveals that, in many ways, he trusts the situation and the circumstance, more than he trusts the Savior. The numbers don't add up. And even if Jesus is standing right there, it isn't an answer to all the needs that they're facing. I think Philip's response also reveals just a hint of cynicism and doubt. Many times when people choose to become cynical and doubtful, and they hold on to that as an attitude, it's because they've been disappointed in life before. And it's not hard to imagine Philip having faced disappointment. Obviously, back then, people didn't live as long. So most adults, or even teenagers, have lost someone important to them. He would have faced disappointment. We know that Israel was occupied and oppressed to an extent by the Roman government. So Philip was a man acquainted with disappointment, and in order to shield him cynicism and doubt, wrapped around himself like a blanket, because it makes the disappointment A little easier to handle. It doesn't hurt quite as much. And I think when life presents us with the same test and we face a need so great that we're unable to meet it, our hearts can be in a similar condition as Philip's. Maybe we still haven't learned to trust our Savior more than our situation. And don't hear what I'm not saying. It's important to acknowledge the situation. No one's telling you to be a denier of reality. Right, if you're sick, it's okay to say you're sick. It doesn't mean your faith is weak. When we acknowledge the situation, we're able to take proper corrective answer uh, actions, we're able to make good decisions. God cares about good decisions. God cares about wisdom. That's why Proverbs is in the Bible. That's why James is there in the other wisdom literature. So we need to live with an awareness of reality. However, our situation also shouldn't stop us from seeking God and asking him to move anyway. We should be able to cultivate a faith that acknowledges reality and perseveres anyway and believes anyway. And that's what God is trying to build in us. But it's hard to get there. It takes time. Maybe if we've been tested or when we're tested, our hearts might also reveal that we've got a little bit of cynicism or doubt in us. Because most of us have faced disappointment before. Maybe things didn't turn out the way we wanted to. or We prayed a prayer with all of our heart and maybe we even believed and God didn't answer the way we wanted him to answer. And in the face of this disappointment, in order to protect us from it again, we wrap ourselves in a blanket of cynicism and doubt in order to lessen the pain of disappointment in the world. But the same cynicism and the same doubt that we use to protect ourselves also keeps us from hoping again. It keeps us from hoping, and God wants us to live with hope. And so if we copy Philip on this test, and we write, trust the situation more than the Savior, and be cynical as our answers to the test, then we have failed the test. Sorry, we failed, but... Those are not the right answers. They're normal answers, but they're the wrong answers. So we need someone else's example, someone else to learn from in order to learn how to respond to this test when it comes. And thankfully, someone shows up on the scene who can give us the answer to the test. What do we do when we need a miracle? And the person who shows up on the test is a little boy. Now, when I studied, I didn't know this, but... Um, The phrase little boy in Greek in John chapter 6, it's a double diminutive. What that means is it's emphasizing the fact that this boy is really little. It's like calling him a peewee or squirt. I've been called squirt before. It's highly offensive. It's not my fault. I'm short. God made me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But this is a small, small kid. And this small kid has five barley loaves. Barley was reserved for the poor people. And the other gospel writers, they say that he brought two fish, but the apostle John, who wrote his book last, and would have probably seen their letters, clarifies for us, these were two small fish. This was not the main course. It was a relish. It was a side dish. So everything about this boy is little. And I think there's a lesson there. Because Even if we bring God a little bit, even if what we give God is limited, God can take it and multiply it and do far more with it than we could ever imagine if we put it in his hands first. So this kid put something in the hands of Christ. And I think there are four things we can learn about what he did that teaches us what to do in need of a miracle. These four things are like the four answers to the test. So let's copy the kid. All right, number one, be close to God. Pretty simple. Number one is be close to God. And we can infer this in the story because how on earth did the kid know that he should offer his lunch? He must have been close enough to overhear the conversation between Jesus and Philip. And he would have been close enough to grab Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and say, Excuse me, sir. I don't know why the kid in first century Jerusalem or Israel has a British accent, but excuse me, sir. I've got some bread. And some fish, would you like it? And he he's close enough to tug on it. He's close to Jesus. And we have the opportunity and the privilege to get close to Jesus. Christianity is unique and we believe that we have a God who not only allows us to get close to him, but also wants us to get close to him. And we know that's the case because he got close to us first. Jesus made the first move. In John chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus is the word of God who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we behold his glory, glory as of the, the Son coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word became flesh. A word is something that takes something invisible, like a thought, a feeling, and it expresses it and allows it to be known. Jesus is called the word of God because he takes the invisible character and nature and personality and love of God and he became real so we could experience him and know God through Jesus. Jesus crossed eternity and lived in our earth so that he could be close to us. He did his part. Are we willing to do our part to seize the privilege and opportunity to be close to Jesus? And it should be simple to get close to Jesus. It's not always easy, but it should be simple. We know many of the ways to do it. We get close to God as we read God's word. The grass will wither and the flower will fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and rebuke and exhortation. We get close to God in prayer. And prayer, we talked about this at our campus group at UNLV this past week. Prayer is not about ritual. Prayer is about relationship. It is about conversation with the Father. We can get close to God through music, through worship. We get close to God when we live our daily lives and choose to act like Jesus. You know, this past week, um, Ali got pushed at school. Ali's my oldest daughter. And uh, my feelings... We're fiery at that moment. I came to pick her up from school at the very moment she's running toward the front door with her nose bleeding. I felt a certain way. I wanted to lay hands on people. (laughs) But instead, I remembered that Jesus is slow to anger. And Allie goes to a Christian school. And as a pastor, I'm kind of a professional Christian. But mostly that Jesus would have been patient. So we talk about it and we take care of her and we love our daughter in a way that honors God and choosing an attitude and actions and words that reflects the love of Jesus. And when we do that, we're getting closer to God. We get close to God when we do these things. And as we get close to God, we get to know his character. That's number two, the second answer to the test know his character. Now this kid is probably fighting through a massive crowd of tens of thousands of people because he's hearing rumors that this Jesus is doing things. That this Jesus is performing miracles. That Jesus is powerful. So he fights through the crowd and he gets close enough to Jesus to overhear his conversation. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard these stories of celebrities who are arrogant and mean and rude, but that's the opposite of what this boy hears when he gets close to Jesus. Because all he hears is is that this local celebrity who everyone is chasing into the fields just wants to feed everyone. And in that moment, the boy gets a glimpse of two important aspects of the character of God. And we should be able to see that even clearer than him because we get to look backwards and see the whole story. We get to look back and see God's love. And when we think about the cross, it reveals the love of God to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We get to look back and know that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, before we had ever done a good thing, Christ died for us. So God loves us. But we also get to look at the cross and see the power of God. Romans 1 says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power by the spirit of holiness. The same spirit who lives in us, by the way. So the cross reveals the love and the power of God. God's love means he cares. God's power means he's capable. And if we understand this about the character of God, then we'll run to him when we have a need. Even if we're in need of a miracle. God cares about you. God cares about your daily life needs. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows what you need in your family. He knows what you've been facing, the thoughts you've been thinking. He cares and he's capable of helping you. So run to him. But sometimes when we run to him, we discover that God also wants us to do something. That's why the third answer on this task is answer God's call and surrender for the cause. These two things are listed together because they almost always go hand in hand. So the boy approaches Jesus and he hears that he wants to feed people. And he offers his lunch because Jesus wants to feed people. He's answering the call of God in the most practical way he can. But as he answers God's call, he also has to pay a cost. He has to surrender something. Because surrendering and following God almost always demands that we surrender something first. When Jesus called his first disciples, we're told that they had to leave their nets behind in order to follow him. Those nets were their jobs. It was their future. It was their career. It was their family history. They had to leave it behind in order to follow Christ. When Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, he had to get up from behind the tax collecting table, leave a lucrative career behind, and go follow this man. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, If anyone desires to be my disciple... He must first pick up his cross. He didn't say pick up his comforter. He didn't say pick up his stuffed animal. He didn't say pick up his blankie. Pick up your blankie and follow me. Pick up abundance and follow me. Pick up peace and comfort and follow me. Jesus said pick up your cross. Get uncomfortable. Sacrifice and surrender something and follow me. And then Jesus set the example when he went to the cross and he sacrificed and surrendered his life. And it might be difficult to think about sacrifice and surrender. There's joy in this too. Because if God is calling us to surrender like Jesus, then he's also calling us to victory like Jesus. We know that after Jesus surrendered his life on the cross, he came back three days later in victory over sin and the grave. In victory So surrender and sacrifice comes before victory in the dictionary and in the Christian life. And if God is calling you to sacrifice like Jesus did, then he's also calling you to be victorious like Jesus was. I believe that God wants us to walk in victory. So how is he calling you to surrender? That's how we get to victory. It's important for us to identify how God is calling us to surrender in order to answer his call in this season of our lives. (coughs) Excuse me. One way we do that is through prayer and through fasting. And some of you might have gotten an inkling of what God is calling you to do in that moment. We also figure this out in community. We're never called to follow Jesus alone, and that's why we talk about life groups so much. So this is something we need to do as individuals, but it's also something we have the opportunity to do as a church. And over the next few months, we'll actually be doing that. As an every-nation family around the world, we want to advance God's kingdom and make disciples through church planting, campus ministry, and world missions. Starting in February, Pastor Roland is going to lead a small team of people to Panama to invest in church planting and world missions at the same time. Some of you know that Pastor Roland is half Panamanian. The rest of you figured something or learned something new about him today. He's also friends with our every-nation church planter in Panama. And the Every Nation family has recently decided we're going to invest even more time, even more resources into Latin America because we want to see the gospel flourish here. We want to see God's kingdom grow here. So they're going to go to a conference and find out how we can move forward with this church plant in Panama, and which is really looking like it's going to become the hub of what Every Nation wants to do throughout Latin America. So in serving this church and by supporting them, we're actually going to impact the entire region, that's one thing we've got on the calendar. Another thing that we're going to do in March is receive and welcome a missions team from our sister church in Reno. Now, some of you guys know Pastor Brett and Jory Holman from All People's Christian Church. They're an every-nation church um, in Reno, Nevada. Well, their, pa- their campus missionary is named A.J. Cummings. Yeah, A.J., my boy, A.J. I met AJ when he was still a student in college, and God called him in a mighty way, and now he's serving on the campus and doing an incredible job there. Well, God recently spoke to them, so they're going to take a team of their students and their leaders, come visit us a week after our spring break, they're going to join our campus ministry at UNLV and engage students with the gospel on campus. That'll be from March 18th to to March 23rd or something like that. So, we as a church are going to get an opportunity to answer God's call and surrender for his cause over the next two months as we give toward these things. And the beautiful thing is, when we do that, God multiplies it and God blesses people. As long as we do the fourth thing on this test, and that's act in confident faith. That's what separated this boy from the disciples at first because they were all so close to God and they knew his character. They even surrendered for his cause before. But at that moment, the boy acted with confident faith, trusting that somehow Jesus could show up. And then Jesus invited his disciples into that picture and he sent them out and said, Have everybody sit down. He didn't tell them what he was going to do. He just said, Go tell these thousands upon thousands of people to sit down on the ground. And then he began to distribute the food. And I imagine they were very nervous for those first two families. But then the food kept coming. And coming and coming because they were obedient to Christ. They acted with confident faith. And they saw him show up. And that's what they did when they needed a miracle. And God provided a miracle. And a miracle's end result is that our hearts are satisfied and that God is glorified. That's the end game. Regardless of how God gets us there, that's where he wants to bring us to a place where our hearts are satisfied in him and he is glorified in us. John the Apostle makes it very clear and he takes great care to repeat the fact that everybody ate until they were full, until they were satisfied, until they had enough to eat. And this miracle proves that God does in fact care about our stomachs. But God cares even more about our hearts. And he wants us to have full and satisfied hearts in him. And his miracles and his blessings can take different forms because there are different things God can do to get us there. God can provide miraculous provision. Amen? God can provide miraculous protection. A lot of you know that I was in a car accident that could have claimed my life last July. I was driving home and someone T-boned me at 55 miles an hour on the driver's side with no one else in the car. But if that accident happened a fraction of a second later, then that car would have hit my car instead of around the driver's steering uh, tire in the driver's door. I could have lost my life right there. Instead, God protected me. And instead of my life being altered or lost, I am uninjured. And I believe that is the miraculous protection of God. There are examples and people in this church who are the recipients of God's miraculous healing. Again, many of you know that I have been limping on this foot for essentially the last month, and I couldn't do this. Well, guess what? I can stand on one leg again. I think God touched me. When we were having our online prayer meeting and Veronica prayed for my foot, I felt something being touched in my foot. So God can provide miracles, and also he can bless us in other ways. So instead of the miracle coming to us or happening for us or around us, the miracle can be inside us. And it's not the option we would check if God were to ask us what we wanted, but it can be just as beautiful. You know, my foot is good enough to function pain-free, but it's not 100% yet. And I think the reason for that is because I have to change the way I walk. And if my foot instantly got better, then I'd probably go back to my old habits but God is allowing me to change something. Sometimes the healing doesn't come because God wants to grow our character and our faith instead. Sometimes the provision doesn't come because God is calling us to make adjustments and teaching us to be content instead. And even in the worst case scenario, if God chooses to heal us or our loved ones in heaven, then it's because he's called us to develop a life of faith And look forward with faith to the fact that we get to walk pain-free, problem-free with him forever. So the miracle can happen inside us. And the beautiful thing about God is whether he chooses to bring the miracle to us or he wants to perform a miracle in us, the end result is the same. And the end result is that our hearts are satisfied in God. And that God is glorified in us. The fact of the matter is we don't know what God is going to do. I wish we did. But there's only one way to find out. So what do we do when we need a miracle? Get close to God. Know his character. Remember his character. Answer God's call. And surrender for his cause. Then act with confident faith. And we could look forward with hope and blessed assurance and faith, knowing that the end result is the same no matter what happens. Our hearts will be satisfied in God and God will be glorified in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus that you are the God who performs miracles. And sometimes you want to do the miracle for us and sometimes you want to do it in us, but God, we love you regardless of what you do we trust you regardless of what you do. So Lord, I pray that you would bless us in this moment. Bring our hearts to life again. Free us from the shackles of cynicism and doubt and teach us to hope again. And I pray, God, that in you we would be able to move forward with confident faith knowing that you'll show up and we'll be satisfied in you regardless. I want to say one more prayer before we go today. If you're here, hearing about Jesus, and you know that you don't have that relationship with him, but you want to get closer to Jesus, you want to know more about him. Some some people call this being born again. Becoming a Christian really is just choosing to get to know Jesus a little more and follow him a little more. If that's you this morning and you want to do that, then on the count of three, I I want you to raise your hand, and I'm going to pray with you. All right, one, two, three. If you want to know Jesus more, thank you. Praise God. Thank you. Praise God. Anybody else? Thank you. Praise God. I see your hands. If that's you and you want to know Jesus more, then do me a favor. Repeat after me. As you confess your faith in Jesus out loud, say, Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. That he died in my place and he rose again. Three days later, Jesus, help me to follow you. Help me to know you. Help me to be like you. Make me a miracle. In your name, Jesus, amen.